welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. I am your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I am talking with Assistant Professor of Geology, Joe Levy. Professor Levy is a geomorphologist and a planetary scientist with interests in sedimentary geology, surface processes, and geological-ecological interactions. His research focuses on permafrost land systems around the globe and around our solar system. Levy earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago and his master's and PhD from Brown University. Levy's work has been featured extensively in the press in outlets including CNN, Salon, the BBC, and the MIT Technology Review. You can learn more about Professor Levy's research online at his research website, colddirt.org, and his blog, colddirt.blogspot.com, and on his Twitter feed, at colddirt. And I sense a theme there. There's a lot of cold dirt. <laughs> Professor Levy, welcome to 13. Thanks so much for the invite to be here. Yes, we are excited to have you here. Um, and I think I just want to start out first with a kind of laying the groundwork. And I think most people are familiar with what geologists do. Um, but I was wondering if you could take a moment to explain what exactly geomorphologists study. Sure. And, and you know, I think that's that's actually a really interesting thing to say, because uh, something geologists always find themselves saying is no one understands what geologists do. And, and you know, when you hear geology, you might think hard rocks and coal and oil. But but really, you know, as a geologist, as an earth scientist, uh, I think that it's it's my job to to be writing the operator's manual for our planet to figure out how does the earth work? How does the environment work? Um, how is it that we have a life-sustaining planet? Uh, and so, uh, you know, that th those are the real foundational questions that geologists worry about. Um, and it, it kind of gets into these big questions of how is it that we're here? Um, and what are the mechanisms that, that keep our planet going? Um, and so geomorphology is a, is a small part of that but it's, it's where the rubber meets the road in terms of climate and Earth's surface. Um, and so, you know, I'm a, I'm a geologist, but, but don't tell other people in the department, you know, my favorite rock is ice, um, big, and, and, which is a rock. Uh, so, you know, when you go out and slip on a, a frozen puddle, you are slipping on solidified lava. Um, it's, we don't think about it that way, but it is. And, and so geomorphology is the study of the, the shape of the Earth and how... Uh, Everything from rainstorms to windstorms to glaciers uh, have shaped our planet, and so uh, you know it's a field that I love because it, it's it's a chance to think a little bit about climate and how climate has changed over time. It's a chance to see the effects of biology uh, on the landscape. So you know a, a vegetated landscape here in beautiful central New York in springtime is totally different from a barren, almost lifeless landscape in Antarctica. Um, and so we want to know how does climate and bedrock and soil development and, and everything shape what we see. Um, and we want to know that because it's really important. Uh, you know, you can't look again at a map of central New York and not see the effect of geomorphology. You know, all of our roads follow the traces of old glaciers, uh, all of our, you know, quarries or, uh, you know, even the, the farm fields around here are experiencing the relic of, of past surface processes. And so a geomorphologist is the kind of geologist who wants to know uh, how does the skin of the earth change and, and how do all these complicated different cycles shape it? So there's mm -hmm. a lot of work to do. Uh, 
And your research recently made some headlines after you discovered that Mars has experienced somewhere between six and 20 separate ice ages over the past 300 to 800 million years. How did you figure that out? So, yeah, this is a lot of coming and going of ice. Uh, and so, you know, I did the same kinds of things on Mars um, that glacial geologists have been doing here for, for the better part of a century. And, and the answer is, you know, if the glaciers aren't necessarily there today or aren't there at their full extent uh, that they were during the Ice Age, you have to go look for clues to see where the glaciers were uh, and what was their past extent. Uh, so right now, thankfully, we're not covered by two miles of ice here. Uh, it's a beautiful spring day instead. Um, but, you know, you could walk around uh, this area and look for moraines. You could look for giant drop stones. Uh, you could look for erratics. Um, you could look for all of these markers that said there was ice there in the past. Um, and on Mars, the uh, the glaciers are still there. They, they may be a little bit smaller um, than they were at their maximum extent uh, because they're in this very cold, very dry atmosphere that is really thirsty for water. So the ice sublimates away. It just vaporizes and, and goes right back to the poles. Um, but what we saw uh, were bands of boulders, these big rocky debris bands that uh, are on the glaciers. Uh, and uh, on Earth, when we see that on a, on a cold, frozen, uh, Antarctic-style glacier, uh, we know that that's evidence of a, of a big, uh, thick accumulation of rocks that are inside the glacier. And so normally, a glacier is only going to flow when there's a lot of ice piling up. Um, and in Antarctica, uh, what we find is that there are, is climate change over time, the amount of sunlight reaching the surface of the Earth uh, changes in response to Earth's wobbling uh, orbital uh, axis and other orbital parameters. And so when it gets too uh, sunny and too warm for ice to accumulate uh, in the glacier accumulation areas in Antarctica, rocks start to pile up. And then next time an ice age comes around and that, that mass balance is what we call it on the glaciers, we get more ice accumulating than sublimates or melts away. We, uh, we push that band of debris down the glacier. It's kind of like a barcode marker showing, hey, ice accumulation stopped and now it's resumed again. And so we looked for these exact same features on Mars and saw them all over the Martian surface. So uh, a group of about a dozen students uh, and me and some, some other collaborators spent two years looking for these bands of boulders. Uh, and uh, well, and uh, and we found them all over uh, 45 different glaciers on Mars. And it's kind of exciting because we just didn't know, did these glaciers form all at once or did they form over a long period of time? And now we've seen evidence from multiple ice ages on a single glacier, um, which is pretty wild. Hmm. Now, the range here, of 6 to 20 ice ages, is pretty broad, although maybe not so broad when you're talking about hundreds of millions of years. So maybe that's actually very precise. Why oh, yeah, is no. it, Yeah, I was, you know, why is it hard to pinpoint? Well, uh, so, the, you know, this is one of these great geological challenges is thinking over really long periods of time. I mean, for me, the last year has felt like a decade um, and, the, uh, you know, and the past decade has felt like a million years at this point, trying to remember back. But, but you know, geologists have to deal with millions of years all the time. You know, we, again, you know, our, our planet is so changeable and dynamic. Um, it's a scant 20,000 years to go back to a world which is totally unrecognizable from Mars. It's as alien uh, as Mars uh, was today, you know, with, with ice covering huge amounts of North America. And so ice ages come and go. And we, we've had this sort of very regular cadence for the last couple million years on earth of every hundred thousand years or so, we get a, an ice age. Um, and a, there's about the same kind of rhythm uh, on Mars in terms of the wobbles of the, uh, the planet's orbit that should produce ice ages. So 
uh, Mars is an incredibly old surface. Um, you know, unlike uh, Earth, it doesn't seem to have plate tectonics that are constantly recycling crust and, and obliterating uh, the, the record of past interactions between climate and the surface. Uh, and so what we wanted to do is to kind of try and use the geology or use the, the, the surface uh, rocks that we can see to, to read back past climate change. And it's certainly possible over you know, a million year period, if you have an ice age every 100,000 years, you might expect like 10 uh, ice ages. And then if you go back 10 million years, there might be a hundred ice ages. Uh, and so once you get into these hundreds of millions of years, you're talking about huge numbers of potential kind of mini ice ages. And we didn't see evidence that those were enough to kind of push Mars over the brink, that to, to really uh, cover uh, large parts of the planet with ice and, and get that ice moving. Yeah, it's it's these slightly more rare kind of big events. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we you know, we've caught Mars at this incredibly boring time in its history when there's not <laughs> active snowfall and glaciers. Um, it's a real pity, um, but but we do the best we can to, to look back in time when things were more exciting. It's kind of like looking at, you know, a shoebox full of old photos and remembering when you used to be cool. I'm like, man, I used to be so cool. <laughs> Mars was cool. Is that what you're saying? Mars was cool when it was younger. Um, <laughs> Why is the discovery of these past ice, ice ages on Mars so important for our understanding of the red planet? And I guess what impact could that have on our future exploration efforts there? Oh, a great question. So there, there's sort of two parts to this. Uh, there's one is why does it matter? And, and two, why is it so important? Um, I mean, maybe that's the same question as splitting hairs, but it, it matters for understanding the, the history of Mars um, because in order to build these glaciers, the, the climate modelers uh, who I work with think that you need to really have a big orbital wobble. You need to actually take Mars's uh, uh, spin axis and basically tilt it down towards the sun. That makes for a really bright, sunny, uh, warm winter uh, and a really hot summer uh, in the uh, in the Martian polar regions. That destabilizes the ice and pushes it towards the equator, which actually becomes kind of like a colder part of the planet. And then as that ice is slowly working its way back towards the poles after this big, unusual orbital wobble, um, that's when it builds up these glaciers. And so anytime you're moving ice around, between hot and cold parts of the planet, uh, you're basically taking uh, water uh, and depositing it out uh, and giving it an opportunity to warm up and melt. Um, so I think uh, ice ages on Mars are an important way to get ice, which is otherwise just a solid or a, a vapor on Mars, uh, down towards lower latitudes where it can start to melt and create habitable environments. So you know, if we're interested in exploring Mars for signs of life, uh, you could do a lot worse than go towards a great big glacier, which uh, has the potential uh, to melt either in the subsurface or on a really hot summer day uh, near the surface. And there's a little tiny hints that some of these glaciers have little surface meltwater streams uh, flowing down through the debris. There's little, uh, uh, you know, there's gullies near them. Um, there's little deltas that look almost like little meltwater ponds. So the evidence is tantalizing uh, that that multiple ice ages means multiple opportunities to have a warmer, wetter environment, which is good for life. Hmm. Now, the ice today in its cold state is really good for people um, because the one resource humans are gonna need if and when we get to Mars uh, is water. Uh, and that's because water is a multi-tool for exploration. Uh, you can drink it, obviously, if you melt it. Um, if you, you can hide under it or inside of it, and it's a great radiation absorber. Um, and uh, if you have a big solar panel or a nuclear reactor, you can rip it apart into hydrogen and oxygen. And the oxygen is important to breathe, and the hydrogen is Part of rocket fuel. Um, so these giant debris-covered glaciers on Mars, I, I think, are a prime target for exploration. Uh, not only are they scientifically interesting, because they tell us about Mars's climate history, but they're also a giant ice cube, you know, cubic kilometers of ice, just a, you know, 
so you know the town, uh, village of Hamilton is like a kilometer on each side. So imagine a ice cube the size of the village going three thousand feet into the air. That's just one cubic kilometer, and many of these glaciers have uh, tens or hundreds of cubic kilometers of ice. It's enough for humans for a very long time. So knowing that this ice is there is important, but also knowing that there might be giant boulders in there that you're gonna have to dodge or, or chip out uh, makes it just a little bit more realistic that you wouldn't wanna go uh, to these glaciers with a straw or a little you know, plastic beach <laughs> shovel. It's gonna take some engineering to actually make use of that water. Oh, wow. I love talking to you about this stuff too, because you know, I think uh, we were gonna try to get together last week to talk about this and you were trapped on Zoom calls with, I guess trapped is probably not the right word, but you were on Zoom calls with NASA all week. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing with NASA right now? Absolutely. So uh, NASA supports uh, scientists at universities and uh, at NASA research centers uh, and at sort of not-for-profit research corporations uh, to do the work of, of analyzing spacecraft data. You know, so NASA engineers um, and uh, contractors build these spacecraft and send them to Mars or the moon or Mercury um, or the asteroid belt. I mean, so many cool places that spacecraft are going. And then the teams that are actually conceiving of these missions and, uh, and driving the rovers and deciding where to go um, are often so busy actually driving the spacecraft that they can't analyze the flood of data that's coming back. Um, and so there are uh, research and analysis programs at NASA where NASA will support university researchers uh, like me uh, to analyze that data and try and answer scientific questions or to process the data so that it, it becomes uh, more useful for uh, future missions, for our understanding of the, the solar system. Um, and so NASA has review panels um, where they uh, bring in scientists uh, and scientists write in their, their sort of proposal, their best idea for how to make sense of the data or to process it in some new way. Uh, and uh, reviewers sit around and read the proposals and, and then talk about what's good and what's bad and what they think will work. And the uh, the, the best proposals kind of get the thumbs up from the, the committee. And then that's passed up to decision makers and NASA who decide what to actually fund. But this is, you know, one of these great things uh, about science, right, is that the peer review is so important that we get uh, expert reviewers kind of evaluating ideas in their formative stage when you're writing a proposal. So that, that's what I was helping do uh, this last week. was, um, And then you also get reviewers who are kind of kind of good critics, kind of devil's advocates, uh, trying to, to make sense of your research when you're publishing it. Um, so at every stage, you know, there are lots of eyes on the, the process. And so people get a really, I, I, I guess I find it really uh, heartening to know um, that there are so many ways to be wrong in life about so many things. But when you have a whole bunch of people working on, on evaluating these projects and reviewing, uh, that the, the, the good ideas sort of start to, to float uh, to the top in some ways. And, and you find out where you were where you were overconfident and where you can can be uh, better you know next time so it's it's always hard to take reviews uh, and, and edits but it's uh it's this kind of cool process and it was nice to be part of that um kind of helping some really great ideas hopefully come to light in the next couple of years as people uh make more sense of mars and is this does this pertain to the current data they're collecting right now absolutely yeah so this is uh you know there, there's this giant flood of data i uh Almost no one can walk, can look at every you know satellite image that comes down from Mars. There's such a, a, a flood of spacecraft observations, um, and uh, they often say you know the best geologist is the one who's seen the most rocks, and I think the the best Mars scientist is someone who's, who's looked at the most data and uh, can really see what Mars is trying to tell us. You know that that there's there's it's so easy. It, it's an important part of actually of being a geologist to imagine what things were like in the past and to imagine how things are on, on other planets. 
Um, but to really kind of be grounded in, in the observations and to really steep yourself in them uh, and to use the most current up-to-date uh, data to, to frame what you're thinking is, uh, is important. Because um, otherwise people kind of imagine their way into weird wrong avenues. Uh, we've seen that in you know, Mars history for the better part of a couple hundred years. People kind of imagined, oh, maybe those blurry lines are canals, you know, maybe that would be cool. Um, and it takes a lot of peer review and, and, and peer observation to say, no, no, just, uh, just you know, craters and glaciers and potential river channels and giant volcanoes, just, you know, the, the, the normal things that happen on the planet. <laughs> Can, can you talk a little bit, how did you get involved with doing, you know, moving away from, or not moving away from, but on top of your terrestrial research on Earth, how did you get involved with, you know, studying Mars? Like, what was the pathway where you were like, ah, this is, uh, this is it? The short answer is that that one planet is never enough right now. The, um, you know, that that's the kind of crass answer. But so I got my start um, studying uh the, the big question that I started out grad school with was how does the climate of a planet mark the surface and, and leave a record of climate change kind of written in the, the surface and in the rocks? Um, and uh, I liked that idea because it kind of turns, in some ways, the, 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 the typical idea of how planets create atmospheres on its head. You know, the, the, our atmosphere, we, we owe a lot to the interior of the Earth and volcanoes for all of our trace gases. And um, I wanted to say, what's, what's the other way? You know, I... I you know, my wife is a volcanologist, and I, when we go to look at volcanoes, she sees the process of building a volcano, and I see the erosion and the gullies and the streams kind of tearing it down. So I think the climate wins, uh, whereas interior geologists think that the deep earth wins. Um, so I started out with this big question, and uh, as I was thinking about grad schools, um, I, I kept realizing that that we only have a single case of observations uh, for understanding how climate and the Earth's surf or planetary surface work if we confine ourselves to Earth. Um, and so I ended up uh, kind of applying to a couple of planetary geology grad schools and, and a couple of, of just Earth geology grad schools. And what really piqued my interest um, was uh, a, a chance when I when I interviewed um, with uh, Jim Hedit Brown, who ultimately became my PhD advisor. He said, "Well, do you want to go to Antarctica?" Yeah, sure. Uh, why? Uh, I said, well, because if you want to understand the evolution of climate and a planetary surface, go to the, you know, the most representative place on, on Earth to understand another planet. Because Mars, uh, like Antarctica, is a cold desert. Um, and so, yeah, six months after signing on the dotted line, I was jumping out of a helicopter in, in Beacon Valley, which is one of the, the coldest, driest, windiest, uh, most awful places on Earth. But it has a debris-covered glacier on it, just like these low-bit debris appearing glaciers on Mars. And so it, it's just the best natural laboratory um, for taking an extreme place on Earth and tying it to, uh, to processes that might be operating on kind of normal parts of another planet. Uh, and so I just, I love this idea that, that you can learn about geological processes uh, that are way outside of your imagination. You know, I, I didn't when I started grad school, I, I barely knew about glaciers that were frozen to their bed or, you know, places where it's actually so cold and dry that ice just sublimates away. Um, there's actually a, a corner of uh, the greater Beacon Valley area in Antarctica. Where there's actually no active life. This is like a postage stamp sized area where it's just too cold, too salty, too windy, too irradiated. Um, nothing survives. And that's, that's alien to earth. And yet it exists here. And so, you know, if we're going to understand places that are, are more like that in the solar system, it's important to 
to go to these places and make sense of them here uh, as sort of a, a test case or a dress rehearsal. And then we can use that information to, to both guide the way we explore the solar system and also to understand it. You know, if uh, So it, it, that's sort of how I got kind of multi-planet was uh, I like to test the ideas that are developed on Earth on other planets. But then I also like to take the, the kind of that, that the approach from analyzing other planets where, you know, I'd love to go to Mars, but I can't. So I'm confined to, to spacecraft observations to take that kind of expertise and bring it back to Earth and say, okay, for remote places on our planet or for places that are hard to understand, you know, what is there anything that makes our planet special or can we understand it in a Mars framework? Uh, or is, and is there anything that makes Mars really special or can we understand it in a, in a kind of Earth framework? I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your how you how you became interested in geology and i guess what was was the spark that kind of led you on the path to becoming a geologist and i do ask this in a slightly selfish manner my daughter is 11 one of my daughters is 11 and she is crazy about rocks um so i i am curious uh as as someone who does study um you know rocks and the earth and mm-hmm. the mars and everything for a living like how how did you uh get into it yeah. So, you know, a lot of people uh, get into geology and, and maybe your daughter too, but by living in a place where there's fossils in the rocks and it's just, there's so many cool layers and you go out and you crack something open and there's a shell or a trilobite and it's just amazing. Um, I grew up in the boring DC suburbs where, where there aren't a lot of really great fossils. Um, and uh, what ultimately I think like early in my life captured my interest was, was just like through scouting and hiking with my family, just being outside in, in nature all the time. And uh, if, if there's like a formative type locality for me, it's it's the Billy Goat Trail on the Potomac River uh, in uh, uh, that is basically a rock scrambling playground. It's like the ultimate bouldering course at a rock gym, only it's actual boulders. And I just spent hours and hours and hours of my youth just like climbing around on these giant rocks. Um, and so I liked being outside and I liked kind of wondering, like, why is this area so different from just up the hill, you know, and why is this different from my backyard? Um, and that always stuck with me. It was being outside and, and observing nature and, and kind of being drawn to mountains and rivers and streams. And then I totally forgot about that in college and, and in high school. And, and that's that's one of these interesting things is that I think kids especially are drawn to trying to understand the environment around them. And so geology and, and you know, the earth sciences are are, are would be great career paths for, for, for kids like that. And then it's somehow, it's not taught in schools. It's, you know, that, that it's, it's kind of like a eighth grade curriculum or a fifth grade curriculum in some places. And so, you know, coming out of high school, I thought, okay, physics, chemistry, you know, that's real science, biology. Um, and so when I got to college, I, I didn't take a single geology class my first year and it wasn't even on my radar. Um, I did exactly what I did in high school, which is like, okay, I'll take some physics, I'll take some math, I'll take, you know, a uh, humanities course. I studied uh, Mandarin my first year. It was great. But I found myself at the end of my first year as, as a college student feeling like I was just doing the same thing I'd always done. Um, and so the next year, I remember sitting down thinking, okay, I got to take my chemistry course. Uh, I'm going to take uh, a, uh, a biology course. And on a lark, I'm going to take this introductory geology sequence. Um, and I remember sitting down the very first day of classes and each and every one of the three lectures began, okay, 4.5 billion years ago, the earth accreted out of dust and gas in the solar system. Um, and I thought, wait, why are three different courses beginning at this like one starting point at the origin for our planet? That's gotta be important. Uh, and so I kind of let the, 
the, the you know the bio fall to the side. I let the well, I didn't leave, let the chemistry totally fall to the side. I thought this this planet thing is important. You know everything that we know, we know because we're here and this is our base for studying it. Um, and so uh, it kind of rekindled this interest of like this planet is pretty important. We should understand how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went from there. So there's the there's the early kind of career like birth of a geologist just being outside in nature. And then there's this the much more intellectual point. And I wish everyone would have that aha moment of like, this is all connected. And it turns out earth sciences that connect them. In uh, 2019, you received a five-year, $500,000 National Science Foundation grant to create a new integrated education plan for training student research drone pilots. Can you talk a little bit about that grant and the work that you're doing as a result? Sure. Uh, so this is a, uh, a National Science Foundation. Uh, it's called the Career Grant, um, and it's for early career uh, scientists and educators. And in particular, they want to see a fusion of science, uh, research, and education. And so it, it's the ideal kind of grant for a place like Colgate, where we care about teaching people and students learning, uh, while also learning about cutting-edge research. And so uh, the career uh, project that I'm starting uh, is to... Uh, basically kind of create uh, a cadre of students who are as comfortable exploring the earth using robotic uh, emissaries, drones, uh, as NASA scientists are exploring Mars with robotic drones. Um, Because it turns out there are places that people just can't go safely or can't reach or that are are too fragile, right? You don't want to have boots on the ground stomping through microbial mats in, in Antarctica. You want to keep them safe, so just fly above. And so the, uh, the idea behind this project is that on the science side, uh, we want to understand uh, meltwater uh, in Antarctica. We want to understand how the permafrost is thawing and how that's actually uh, causing the landscape to collapse in some places as, as buried ice melts out. We want to understand how wetting this desert soil um, might actually turn these soils into carbon sponges uh, as we start building up organic matter in uh, these Antarctic wetlands. Uh, we're going to go from just sand to sand with living things in it, and that might pull some CO2 out of the atmosphere. So that's a, an important process to understand. And uh, we're kind of limited in the way we study these things because I spent all my grad years and, and postdoc years basically trudging around Antarctica, digging holes and sampling the ground that way. And that's for the birds. I mean, you just you, it's heavy, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's high impact. Uh, you can't cover a really large area, even if you hike all day. Um, so I got into to drones as a way of, of uh, imaging the wetlands and actually using different kinds of sensors to try and measure soil moisture or temperature uh, of these wetlands to try and figure out how they're thawing. Um, and so I've always thought that this is the kind of work that, that is, is a 21st century tool. Um, it's something that, that students who are graduating from our geology department need to know about. Um, and so the integrated uh, kind of teaching plan here uh, it, it, that is a little bit on hold because of the whole pandemic thing um, is to, uh, to bring students in over the summer to a, a drone summer school. Uh, where they're gonna learn uh, how to safely uh, operate drones uh, and little quadcopters mostly and then use those to answer the kinds of research questions they're interested in. Um, so drones are great for, uh, for detecting change, basically. You know, they're, they're flying camera systems. They can carry other kinds of sensors with them. And so uh, the goal is to connect with students all across the, the sort of central upstate New York region uh, and say, what is changing in your community, in your land surface environment that you care about? Um, and how can you use drones to solve, to find out, you know, how big those changes are? What's causing those changes? Uh, how can you make your community more resilient? You know, if, if your creek uh, is is seeing more spring melt every year and eroding into fields or into 
you know, infrastructure, uh, how could you document that with drones? And so uh, the hope is to, uh, probably not this summer, but starting next summer, uh, get students on campus uh, or out at uh, Bucus and, and be you know, learning how to fly safely and learning how to answer these science questions with drones. And then the students from Colgate who are helping with that process and are, are becoming you know, master drone pilots themselves uh, will be then coming to Antarctica and helping collect uh, that same drone-borne data in the field. Um, so we're about a, a year and a half, uh, two years into this project uh, and uh, still waiting to get to the field. Uh, the, the pandemic definitely put a, a wrench into getting anyone to travel internationally. Um, and uh, so hopefully we will, things will be getting better and speeding up. You know, in the meantime, uh, I, I spent a lot of this proposal that I wrote, the, uh, the career proposal, uh, saying that, oh, it's hard to learn stuff from satellites. You really need to be on the ground using drones. And then here I am in pandemic time, just using satellites because, you know, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot you can learn from satellites because uh, they, uh, yeah, they don't need to, to get a nose swab before they, they go into orbit and start collecting science data. So. Hmm. What, and on that same subject, there is a drone also that is now on Mars. And I'm curious if that, how, um, will that drone be collecting data in much the same way that we do on Earth? Or is that looking for anything in particular? Is it more focused? Yeah, oh, I am so excited about the Ingenuity helicopter. Uh, so I guess it just touched down uh, from underneath the the, uh, the rover under Perseverance over the weekend, and it's ready to fly. And it, it's it's a it's an engineering test, strictly speaking, um, but it's an important science tool. Um, it's uh, it, it's basically equivalent to the kind of drone that that you could go out to the store and buy or buy online. Uh, that is a flying camera system. Um, it's a little bit more sophisticated in a couple of ways because obviously it's designed to fly on Mars. It flies autonomously without a, a human pilot, um, and uh, it's really cool because it has two rotors on a single single kind of spindle. I, I, I just love this uh, helicopter; it's so cool. Um, but really, it's trying to do the same thing that that a lot of Earth scientists use drones for on Earth, which is to to get an, uh, a view from on high, to get that sort of bird's eye view that you need to make sense of a, a landscape that's so much bigger than you are. Um, and so the the flying camera system is uh, is going to be really useful for providing the context that the the mission planners need for both safely driving Perseverance, the rover, around. Um, but also to kind of see where different rocks outcrop. You know, are, are there muddy parts of this uh, lake basin that are still uh, preserved? Because uh, that, that's on Earth, where you would go to find organic matter stored in a, a lake or a delta? Are there you know, steep slopes um, that are going to be hard to traverse and maybe you need to find another way? Um, and so, yeah, this is a, a kind of example of the way that people do terrestrial field research, the way they do research on Earth, kind of informing the way people explore Mars. And thought, wouldn't it be great if we could kind of use these same kinds of drone tools to give us not just context, um, but also that kind of tactical planning? Um, and so there's, you know, there's this feedback between the way we explore the planets. Uh, so hopefully this is going to get a lot of Mars scientists excited about doing field work on Earth and saying, oh, you know, we should, we should probably bring a drone so we can get a, uh, a bird's eye view of what we're, we're looking at here and, you know, make some plans and really optimize our time when we're out in the field. Mm -hmm. uh, so I am just so excited about that. I think it's going to be really cool. Mm -hmm. And it just and makes me want to fly it around. I just, oh, goodness, Joy <laughs> six. I wonder what the delay is, uh, you know, between Earth and Mars for uh, for piloting something like that. that. Well, so that's why it has to be totally autonomous is the, you know, even traveling at light speed as a radio wave. Uh, you're talking about 
you know, sort of seven, eight minutes there and seven, eight minutes back. And so oh, wow. uh, this is why the, the rovers are all commanded uh, at the start of the day. And then the rover has to go out and do its work all day uh, with the mission teams planning in it. There's no, no person on a joystick uh, back at mission control who can react in a way to, to stop it from driving off a cliff or uh, anything else. So there's a lot of planning that goes in. And that's why, you know, there's this cool partnership between scientists and engineers because the, the engineers are not just people, you know, bending metal and building robots, but also building the software to kind of interpret a landscape almost the way a geologist would of saying, you know, where is it safe? Where is it steep? Uh, what can I safely traverse over? And humans hmm. do that instinctually. Uh, robots have to be taught. Um, hmm. And so it's, uh, you know, there are definitely times when I think I would love to have an autonomous or semi-autonomous uh, rover or helicopter to help me with my field work. Uh, maybe, maybe that's in the future. <laughs> that's funny. It reminds me of the old Apple um, turtle game where you inputted the commands mm -hmm. and then it just kind of does it, but based on the instruction. I don't know. And the, the, you know, the, the robot success or the computer success is only as good as the human's instructions. That's, uh... <laughs> Your work has taken you to some of the earth's most remote corners, including Antarctica, like you mentioned. Uh, do you have any other plans for elsewhere? Do you ever go to the equator, for instance? Are you are you ever going to the rainforest or anything, or is or is your work really just focused on the poles? There is something awesome to learn everywhere, and so you know the I have you know, research projects squirreled away from Australia to Central Upstate New York to to, to everywhere else. I mean the our planet is so weird and has had such an interesting history that there's always something to learn. Um, and so, you know, there, uh, there's lots of things I'd like to, to spin up and, you know, finding students who are excited about exploring these ideas as part of their theses is, is a real thrill here. Um, because there's this enthusiasm to say, Hey, we, here's a question we don't know, or a landform we don't understand, uh, or just something we want to know more about. Uh, so, you know, I would love to, to get out West more and look at the channeled scablands and, uh, you know, Idaho and, and, uh, Washington and Oregon, um, those are mega flood deposits um, and mega flood landforms um, that are pretty well understood, but there's always questions about, you know, how much water and where did it come from? And, uh, you know, if you look at giant canyon and channel systems on Mars, they look pretty analogous. Uh, we have our own sort of little version of that here in upstate New York with the Mohawk River. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to kind of spinning up some research on uh, understanding the, the geomorphology of our, our local watershed uh, a lot more. Uh, just because it might be a pretty good Mars analog for how do you carve a, a river at the end of an ice age, which is the, mm. the story of the Mohawk. So yeah, there, there's so much to do. Um, you know, I was in Eastern Oregon in the desert, in a hot desert uh, two summers ago, um, prototyping some of these drone uh, soil moisture mapping techniques. Uh, so uh, a that was uh, field work conducted with two graduating seniors that were, we actually went out to a a hydrothermal plume, a place where this uh, hot spring is discharging into the desert. And so it's like a little analog for what we find in Antarctica and some of the wetlands. And we flew the drone back and forth and measured uh, the soil moisture in the soil using the drone, using these special uh, uh, infrared cameras. And uh, that, you know, is, is work that just got written up uh, this past winter uh, as part of another student's um, uh, lab work. So um, it's really exciting uh, to know that you know you don't have to go to the ends of the earth to find a good planetary analog. Uh, you know they're they're literally in our backyards or kind of a, a short flight away. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm always excited about traveling and, and finding new places to study. Uh, it's it's probably the best part of being a geologist. 
And on the same theme here, uh, in 2019, you taught a course called Geology 120, Cataclysms in America's Parks. And outside of having a very cool name, you took, uh, a uh, what was it, about 16 students um, from a whole host of different academic backgrounds on a 5,500-mile trek uh, across the country. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that trip. Oh, I missed that trip so much. It was so much fun. <laughs> we had such a good time. Um so this, yeah, I mean, this is the, that that thesis in action. There's something to learn everywhere, and and that something is usually pretty exciting. Um, so the idea behind this trip was to take uh, first and second year students uh, here at Colgate who uh, weren't maybe they were interested in geology, maybe they knew something about earth science, maybe they didn't. You know, so we had uh, not just science students, but we had uh, history majors, we had uh, undeclared folks, we had folks who are in you know political science and all kinds of different disciplines now. Um, and they wanted to learn something about the earth over two, three weeks of, of, of a extended study. And so we, we got in the vans uh, outside of the Ho Science Center and started driving. And the very first day, you know, we, we uh, experienced the ice age in central New York. We looked at uh, ice age landforms um, and that uh, out near uh, Lake Erie. And then we, uh, ended up in Titusville, Pennsylvania, which is the birthplace of the American oil industry, and saw these oil seeps bubbling out of the ground that look like an environmental horror story, but they're just they're just part of the landscape. Um, and we went down to the Ozarks and uh, looked at, at flood landforms uh, on the, the Buffalo Wild and Scenic River, uh, and then kind of eventually got out to the, the west-west, uh, like uh, you know White Sands and Grand Canyon, uh, and started looking at mass extinctions. And, you know, sort of how do we know that the Earth has gone through cataclysmic upheavals and, and you know why can we see trackways from dinosaurs preserved in the mud and there's no dinosaurs around um and then i think maybe the the coolest stop was at mesa verde where uh, we we got a chance to look into the pueblos and say you know people lived here in a really rich and vibrant community and and had the time and and, and resources to build these incredible cliff dwellings and now they're gone and, and they're gone because climate change rendered the valley completely uninhabitable. Um, and so, you know, the, the cataclysms that we see over Earth history are huge and almost unimaginable. You know, giant meteorite impacts, uh, you know, huge volcanic swarms. Um, we have not seen those in person, but we've we've had uh, climate upheaval that's created refugees, you know, not just in modern times, but going back thousands or you know, hundreds of years. Uh, and it's it's neat to kind of see what the evidence for that is and to see that that all the all the bad things that happen on our planet and all the things that impact people and and uh and change their lives or hurt them or kill them um have been happening for a long time and so we need to to really understand how our planet works and uh and how it's operated in the past so we can see how it's changing uh in the future and how we can be better stewards of it and, and better operators of it uh and so that was the you know, just a, a kind of a two and a half week immersion in that of like, how do you ask questions about a planet? And then how do you read the answers in the rocks or in the sediments or in the water? Um, and on the way back, we had a, our own little micro cataclysm. Uh, we followed back a, a line of, of devastating uh, thunderstorms that happened to be moving at about 65 miles an hour across the West. And so we spent like two or three days, literally under a tornado warning, um, kind of dodging extreme weather. And so it kind of just brought home like, that, that that your interaction with the planet is is global scale in your mind, but then it, it becomes very personal scale when you're feeling it. Um, so uh, hopefully no one was, was, was too 
freaked out by that. It was an exciting drive. Uh, <laughs> what should have been a very boring three-day trek. <laughs> Y'all made it back. We all made it back. <laughs> so I asked this next question way back uh, in our third episode, and that was our uh, chat with physics and astronomy professor Jeff Barry. Um, but I think it does apply to you as well. And I'm curious, what technology hasn't been invented yet that could really revolutionize the way you do your work? So if there was one thing you wish that you had in your toolbox, what would it be? Oh, that's a great question. Um... Uh, it, yeah, is it technology? Is it magic? What 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 is it? Uh, right. it well, I guess it, yeah, yeah no, certain it, alien technology it seems like magic, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm a giant Star Trek geek, and so I would just say I, I want a tricorder. Um, you know, I, I want a little pocket computer scanner that that when I go out uh, into the field, I, I can ask it almost any question, and it will will tell me about not the the why, but the what, right? You know, I want, I'd love something that uh, could point to a, an Arctic soil and say, you know, quick scan, 30% organic carbon. Uh, and I can write that down and go to the next site and see how it's different. Um, Cause you know, all of the technology in the world to, to figure out what stuff is made out of, whether it's the rocks, whether it's organic matter, whether it's living things, you know, no life signs detected. That would be so cool to just scan. Um, but it doesn't tell you what it means. Uh, and so that, that's where the, the human is never going to be totally out of the loop. Cause you know, you have to know what to scan. You have to know how it's different from other places and, and then what that means for change over time. Um, so yeah, sign me up for a tricorder. It doesn't have to be a medical tricorder. It can just be a regular one that, you know, so. Very cool. Well, you've reached uh, question 13. Uh, and I don't normally do this, but in the spirit of discovery here, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it and, uh, I'm going to pose a hypothetical here. So NASA is forming its first ground team on Mars. They need a geologist. It's a one-way trip. Are you their guy? And if so, what's the first thing you do when you start to work on the red planet? Uh, if it's a one-way trip, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say no at this point in my life because my family, uh, sure. my, my chickens, uh, <laughs> what if you uh, could bring your family and your chickens? I'll if, modify we could, if we could be one way settlers on Mars, yeah. I, I think that would be really exciting. Um, all right. Then, then I would go in a heartbeat. All right. Um, and, uh, gosh, you know, if I could land and, uh, and they're, they're, you know, I would feel like they were probably housekeeping duties. Like someone's got to dig into the glacier to protect us from radiation. You know, someone's got to uh, mine ice so we have water to drink. But if, but if I could delegate some of those tasks and just take a rover and go absolutely anywhere. Um, oh man, it, it, it's a great, it, I, there's so many places to go. It's just, it's like the earth problem again. Um, I think I would go to some of the giant outflow channels on Mars, some of these giant water carved, or the giant canyons that look like they're water carved. Um, but some people think they were carved by giant lava flows. Um, and that kind of gets to, to my you know big concern, which is like, we want to understand what's happened on a planet and water carving a giant canyon is pretty different from lava carving a giant canyon. Like that mm. tells you something very different about whether there were habitable conditions on Mars. So I would love to go and set up a, a Mars tent in one of these, you know, giant outflow channels and look for signs of either melting permafrost and glaciers from deep in Mars history on the one hand, uh, or volcanic eruptions on the other mm. hand and say, Hey, can we, can we solve this? 
you know, what can we see in the, the layering of the rocks or in the sediments that are deposited that'll point us one way or another? Because, you know, if, if there's one thing I really love, it's it's finding out that I'm wrong about something and then being corrected about it. And that, that's the best thing about the sciences, you know, hands down is that you can imagine a whole bunch of different scenarios and then you, you, you throw away the bad ideas or you let go of the bad ideas. And so being on Mars would be a chance to really take you know, 50 or 100 years of Mars scientists looking at the planet saying, hey, what, you know, what might be going on? Are these water, are they lava, are they something else? And actually find out. And it would just be, it would be liberating to uh, to, to shed the old ideas and, and to sort of start a new Mars science based on actually being there. That was 13. Uh, Professor Levy, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. My pleasure. It was tons of fun. Awesome. Uh, for everyone listening, if you have any questions, particularly about Mars or anything else uh, geologically related, uh, feel free to send an email to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And uh, we'll be happy to uh, try and answer your questions. Uh, and until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.